At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Okay. Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Moses encamped before the mountain. And while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, our Lord, today we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. And Lord, we thank you for these great and precious promises. For even these promises, this covenant that you made with Israel It's a mirror for us to see ourselves and to see our need and to see all that you have done for us, all that you call us to do and how to live with you. So Lord, help us to see you this morning. Help us to see your grace. Holy Spirit of God, would you work here among us and change our hearts, soften us, open our ears, and may you form us into the image of Christ. We pray this for your glory For our good and for the sake of the world, Lord, might we be a light that shines in the darkness. So help us now. Move among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have you ever given someone a gift? And with that gift, with giving them that gift, you had a very specific intention behind them getting it. Not just like a, an ordinary gift that you might give someone where you would just give it to them and say, you know, it's, it's yours now. You can, you can do whatever you'd like with it and, and however you want to use that. Or maybe, you know, you give someone a gift card and say, you know, however you want to spend that gift, that's yours to decide and yours to choose. So just, just have fun with that. But no, you've given someone a gift and, and you've hoped and you've had specific intentions behind the aim of that gift. That as you gave it to them, you were anticipating they would fulfill and do certain things with what, what you gave them. I don't know if you've ever given that kind of a gift. I like the way that Victor Hugo kind of tells a story of this in his masterpiece, Les Mis. If you've ever seen the Broadway show or any of the filmed uh, versions of it or even read the story itself, you'll, you'll recall the scene where the bitter criminal Jean Valjean has been released finally from prison. He's served his term and he's been released and, and he goes into society, but he's got this mark against him, these papers against him that, that reveal that he's a, a convict. And so no one will treat him fairly. No one will treat him with any respect. He's, he's tainted in society's eyes, and that's how they will always see him and perceive him. And, and in this one particular community, he can't even find a place to stay. And so he 
comes to the mercy of a certain bishop in that community, in that town, and he receives much grace and kindness from that bishop, a place to, to stay, a warm meal, even comfort, security. And in receiving that kindness, Valjean turns instead and trades that for cruelty. He, he falls into his criminal patterns and steals from the bishop. He steals the silverware from the house and, and takes from the bishop. And when the, the bishop begins to confront him, he strikes the bishop and hits him. And then he runs off with, with the goods of the house. Valjean is fully the criminal that he had been tainted to be, and he flees in the night. But he's caught. He's caught by the French authorities, and, and to determine the fact that he is actually this criminal and to press charges against him, they take him to the bishop, and they ask the bishop to, uh, to identify the man. Do you know this man? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he has? And the bishop does something profound. He gives Valjean a gift, but that gift has, in the bishop's mind, a specific intent and purpose behind it. He gives him the gift of a new life. He, he affirms that he knows Valjean to the authorities, but he affirms it in a way of friendship and says, yes, I know this man. And, and the things that he has, the silverware that he's stolen, well, I gave that to him. And then he turns to Valjean and he says to Valjean, you forgot to take the candlesticks as well. Why did you leave them here? I gave them to you also. He bestows mercy and kindness that Valjean does not deserve and gives him this gift. And so Valjean is freed. He's even, he's even credited with, with wealth all of a sudden and given, as it were, a new name. And the bishop turns and he utters some unforgettable words. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts in the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. In his act of grace, the bishop gives a gift with intense purpose and intention behind it. Valjean is free, but the intention is that he would not live in such a way as his former life dictated, but his life would have a new purpose and a new aim behind it completely. I'll let you figure out and read the story to find out what happens next there. But the question comes, does God have purposes for us when he shows us his grace? When we think about our salvation and what God has done for us, is God just giving us a free gift and saying, hey, go do with it what you will, live however you'd like, be whoever you want to be. I hope you have fun with that. Or does God have specific design and purpose for us, even blessing for us in the grace that he has shown to us and the salvation that he brings to us. Oftentimes we think about salvation as sort of an on or off thing. Either you're saved or you're not. It's, it's somehow equated in our minds as a, as a ticket. You know, we think of our salvation as a spiritual get out of hell free card. It's fire insurance and either we either have it and possess it or we, we don't. And yet we, may, we fail to see the purposes that God has for us. Salvation isn't just get out of hell free. It's not just a ticket to heaven. But in God's bestowing his grace upon us, in him showering us with his affection and love, in giving us the gift of grace, he has specific purposes and intentions for our lives 
as a result of what he has done for us. God redeems his people for a purpose, for something. And that's what the Mosaic Covenant shows us, the covenant that we'll be looking at this morning. It's a mirror for us to look at our own lives. And this covenant is made very specifically with the people of Israel, with, with the children of Jacob. God makes this covenant with them on Mount Sinai. Moses has the mediator of that covenant. But it functions for us today, functions to the church as a mirror for us to see God's grace and his purposes. Oftentimes, people read the Bible, and they read the Bible in the wrong way. They look at the Old Testament, covenants like this, and they say, well, God operated in the law factor. In the Old Testament, you had to obey the law, and then God would show you his grace. And then Jesus came along, and he died for us and was raised to life again, and now God shows us his grace first, and then we obey. Well, that's a misreading of the Bible. You see, the Bible is consistent in its presentation of God's grace and mercy from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. God always acts in grace first. He's always been a God of grace. He has not changed in that. And his grace first, his, his purposes in saving us, or his salvation towards us, shows itself in the purposes that we have to live out. So in looking at the Mosaic Covenant, although... Probably most of us here are not Jewish by ethnicity here this morning. It is a mirror for us as the church today to see God's purposes in our own salvation, what he has done for us. I'd like to show us how this looks through this lens of this covenant and to show us and help us to see this morning that God saves us out of darkness into marvelous light. He saves us out of the darkness of our despair, out of the depths of our sin, out of the pit of hell, as it were, and brings us into his glorious light. And in that light, he has a purpose for us. Light shines. It's one of the reasons we light these candles every week of Advent. It's to remind us of the light of Christ coming into the world, but it's to remind us as well that as we are rescued by God's grace, we too shine the light. The light has a purpose. The covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai, called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant, demonstrates this. Now this covenant is unique. Let me just remind us of where we've been. A few weeks ago we began with the covenant that God made with Noah, with all creatures on the earth. That covenant was to stay his hand and not destroy the world again through a flood. God's covenant with all creation is a covenant of patience. He's saying, I'm waiting so that you'll repent and come back to me and be reconciled to me. And the next covenant that we looked at was the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's the next covenant in the biblical story. There God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and that covenant looked like this. He promised Abraham to make him a great name and to give him a multitude of offspring, more than he could count in the stars in the sky. And he promised to give Abraham a land, a specific land for him and his family, and through Abraham and his family to bring in a blessing to the entire world. Now as we fast forward in the biblical story just a little bit more, we come to the next covenant that God makes. God makes a covenant with Israel at Sinai. Moses stands as the mediator, the, the one who receives that covenant directly and imparts it to Israel. But here in this covenant, it's actually uh, registered in chapter 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. This section of scripture is God's formal covenant with Israel. 
Moses calls it the book of the covenant in chapter 24, verse 7. This is the covenant that God makes with Israel as a result of saving them. Now, let me just give you the story. If we remember a few week, uh, last week, Abraham, he's, he's promised to have a multitude of offspring. And the story fast forwards where God does give him a son, Isaac. And from his son, Isaac, another son comes, Jacob. This is the promised line that God is seeking to bring out his blessing to all the world. Jacob has a multitude of sons. One of them, Joseph in particular, is maybe the favorite son, but also the most despised brother. Jo uh, Joseph is sold into slavery where he's sent to Egypt. He's slandered in the household that he's a slave in and thrown in prison. There he is forgotten by his fellow man, but remembered by God. And as he languishes in prison, God in the right time helps him reveal and interpret a dream of the king of Pharaoh himself Pharaoh elevates him out of prison and makes him number two in all of the land. And through Joseph, God works to provide wisdom to save nations in the midst of a great seven-year famine. Joseph has the wisdom to stockpile the food that they need. The, uh, peoples are saved. And Joseph's brothers, who'd sold him into slavery, come and they meet Joseph. And they are eventually reconciled to Joseph. In the good news of that whole story, Joseph's family, the Israelites now, some 70 in number, move from this land, the land of Canaanites, down to Egypt. And there they live and dwell. They dwell there for some 400 years. And the pharaohs, the kings forget Joseph. They forget that story. And they see this multitude grow from 70 people to some 2 million people, perhaps, in the nation of Egypt. They're subjected into slavery. They're forced into hard labor. The Israelites are put under the heel of the Egyptians. They're slaves. Captivity for 400 years. And that's where we meet Moses in the story. God delivers to Israel Moses. This boy who is to be a prophet and a mediator to lead the people out of their captivity. As Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let let God's people go. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. He wouldn't let the people go. And so God pried Pharaoh's fingers open one by one with the 10 plagues off of Israel, the last one culminating with the death of every firstborn in the, late, in the land, and liberated Israel to go and to worship and to serve him, to bring them to the promised land. So Israel was liberated. They head off into the wilderness. But Egypt can't quit Israel. They're not going to give them up. They want their slave labor, and so they pursue, the armies of Egypt pursue the Israelites up to the Red Sea, and there God works in miraculous ways once again. He parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across on dry land, and as the Egyptian armies follow in hot pursuit and chase them down, God closes the sea and consumes and destroys, wipes out the Egyptian army completely. Israel is freed. They are rescued. They are liberated from their bondage to Egypt. And God is going to lead them now to that promised land. But here God brings them, as it were, as, it, as he begins to direct them into the wilderness. And he begins to lead them to this mountain. God told Moses one of the signs of his ability to deliver was that he would bring these people to this mountain to worship. That's how Moses knew that God was confirming his promises. And so they come to this mountain, and the question is, what will this relationship be like now? What will God do with his people? They've been, they've been walking in the wilderness, following God, 
grumbling and moaning about food and water, saying even it might be best to go back to Egypt. And God says, I want to make a special relationship with you. I want to have a covenant with you. And the question again that we're asking is, why does God do this? What purposes are there for Israel? What purposes are there for us in God's grace towards us? Why didn't God just save Israel and say, get them out into the wilderness and say, hey, have fun with that. I'll meet you in heaven. What was God doing there? Well, he had some specific purposes for them. And as a mirror to us, he has specific purposes for our own lives as well. I want to show us these three purposes here in verses 1 through 6 of Exodus 19 this morning that we can see our lives and the purposes God has for us in our salvation. Let me start with this first one. It's that God saves his people to treasure them. This is the first purpose of God's grace for us. It's to bring us into relationship and to be his treasured people. So we read in 19 verse 1, three months have passed on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain. Well, Moses went up to God. The Lord called him up. Uh, he called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell all the people. Now, God here is beginning to establish a very formal and personal relationship, a covenant with Israel. He gets them to the mountain. They're camped out on the wilderness plain in front of the mountain there. God calls Moses up. And he says, come up to the mountain. I have a word for Israel. I have a covenant that I'm ready to make. And he is establishing this covenant. This covenant is in the format, and this is going to sound technical. Hang with me for just a second. This covenant is in the format of what's called a Caesarean vassal treaty. You know, I know you're just going, what did he just say? What is that? Caesarean meaning king, vassal meaning subject. This was a common treaty that was made with higher powers, taking care of lesser powers, in the ancient Near East. The format of these treaties, God is following himself. He is setting up this king-subject treaty and relationship together. Uh, a Caesarean vassal treaty is an arrangement for a higher power, a Caesarean or a king, to take a lesser group, vassals or subjects, under his care. If the king is going to care for you, if he's gonna protect you and guard you, then the subjects had some obligations about how they were to live in the kingdom. These treaties looked, they had this specific format to them. There were three things that were part of the format. One, there was a declaration of what the king had done. The king proclaimed to these new subjects, here's what I've done for you. I want you to know just how kind I've been, how I've cared for you, how I've protected you. The second part of the treaty would be how the people were to live under the king's cares, how the subject were to live in this new relationship with the king himself. And then the third part of that treaty was a statement of the blessings and the curses, the blessings if they followed along and kept the covenant, and the curses if they didn't follow and keep the covenant. Now, God's establishment of this covenant with Israel has that format. And this is what he begins to do here in verse 19. I'll show you here these three things. First of all, he reminds them of what he has done for them. He shows them, I've been gracious to you. Look with me at verse 4. You yourselves, this is what he says to the house of Jacob and to tell all the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. It's like, remember just a few months ago how you were in slavery and bondage? 
And then we had those, those 10 incredible plagues. I changed the Nile to blood. There were boils and sores. There were frogs. There was great darkness. And yet I preserved you. I took care of you. Your, your firstborn didn't die because you expressed your faith in me and, and the angel passed over that night. And I cared for you. Don't you remember how I, I brought you out of Egypt? You plundered their people. And I, I took you to the Red Sea, and there you, I parted the water, and you crossed on dry land, and then I devoured your enemies in your sight. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You've seen how strong I am. You see how much I care for you. Furthermore, he says, how I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you here to, my, to myself. I love this metaphor of God saying, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I'm firmly convinced that Tolkien borrowed this in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to describe the eagles saving the, the hobbits. This is God saying, look at what I've done. I, like an eagle carrying you on my back away from danger into safety. That's, that's what I've done for you. I've cared for you. I've protected you. I've delivered you, and, and I've brought you to myself. God's grace here is one of relationship. He's bringing these people close to him, in nearness to him. Now, that's how the treaty begins. That's how this covenant starts. God reminding them of his grace. Israel had done nothing up to this point. They were slaves. They could do nothing. God's, God starts with his grace. He bestows his grace first. He showers us with his love and affection. Look what I've done for you. I've delivered you. I've rescued you. I've brought you to me. And then he leans into the second part of these treaties. Let me tell you now how you're to live because of what I've done for you. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. He's saying to them, this is how you will live under my care. Because I've protected you, because I've rescued you, because I've cared for you. Listen, obey, keep my covenant. Follow along with me. Lead or, or be led by me. Their relationship together was held as they followed and obeyed the Lord God. He shows them what he's done for them. He stipulates how they're to live under his care. And then he begins to speak about the blessings and even the curses of the covenant, what it will look like. Here's the purpose of that relationship. What he says there at the second part of verse 5. If you keep my obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And this is the first place we'll start here. God begins to speak of his purposes for his people because of his grace to them. His gift to them has an intention. And that first intention is that they would be his treasured people. Notice here what God is saying to Israel is one of the purposes of his grace and mercy towards them, to make them his treasured people. One scholar says the word here in Hebrew that's translated possession is the same word used in 1 Chronicles 29.3 for David's own private cash and vault of gold and silver, his personal store of all things precious and valuable. That's what God is saying about Israel here. He says, look at all the nations. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God just looks out of this expansive creation and says, everything is mine. All the peoples are mine. All the nations are, are mine. But you, Israel, you, you'll be my personal possession, my, my private treasure, my, my 
own special people. All things are the Lord's, but his purpose in redeeming Israel is to bless them as his distinct and treasured people in all of the earth. He is identifying Israel not as a possession like a tool or an object, but as a son, as a relational identity. This is what God has said about Israel. He he told Moses to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God is identifying Israel as his people, his son, his precious, adopted, loved children. And here's how this functions as a mirror for us. Because we would look at that and say, okay, that's Israel, but but what about us today? The reality is that Christ has come and done the same thing for us. You see, if we read the biblical story of what happens from here on out, Israel doesn't keep the covenant. They don't follow along with the, uh, the way that they should live under the grace of the king. They don't obey the commands. They don't follow the voice of the Lord. They fail to keep covenant with God, and they reap the results of that. They disobeyed. They were exiled from the land. They were purged out. Yet Christ came and fulfilled the promises Jesus Christ, who is the offspring of the woman, who is the son of Abraham, who is the true Israelite, he came and he kept God's covenant here. He kept God's promises. Jesus is the firstborn son, and in keeping the covenant, he has come to redeem and adopt us as God's precious people. So Paul is right when he reminds us in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. By faith, we are united with Christ in his life and death and resurrection, and therefore we are received, not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. We are God's treasured people, not because we have earned it, not because we have attained our own righteousness or salvation, but because Jesus has done it fully and perfectly for us. You and I, by faith in Christ, are accepted and adopted as sons of God. And so the scripture declares us, his people today, his precious and treasured possessions. It's the purpose of God's grace for us to identify you and me as belonging to him, precious to him, sons and daughters of his. You're not your own distinct person. You're not your own distinct life. You belong to God by his grace. You're adopted from no family, from no mercy, into his family, into his mercy child of God. God saves his people to treasure them. The purpose of his grace is to be his treasured people. But there's another purpose here. He continues to speak of the blessings and the purposes in this. In verse 6, the second thing, God equips his people to minister. The blessing of God's grace upon his people is that they would be equipped to minister. Notice with me in verse 6, 
and you shall be to me. So, so I've rescued you, I've adopted you, so follow my voice, keep my covenant, and you shall be to me, he says to Israel, a kingdom of priests. Not only does God make Israel his treasured possession, but he turns their identity from slaves to a kingdom, a nation, a community of priests. And you say, well, what do priests do? What's their function? Well, priests serve, what the role of the priest is, is to help, a priest draws near to God on behalf of other people. A priest himself draws near to God on the behalf of others. Just a little bit later in chapter 19 and verse 22 here, God says, let the priest who come near to the Lord. First and foremost, what a priest does, they, they draw near to God themselves. There's a close relationship, a proximity with God that only priests have. So once a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the sacrifices of the people and he would go into the Holy of Holies and stand before the Lord God on behalf of the people. He drew near to God for the sake of others. And that's the second function of what a priest does. They help others draw near to God. The priests serve as mediators. So when you, if you were an Israelite in that time, if you had sinned, you would take a sacrifice, an offering, and you would go to the temple or the tabernacle, and there you would take that sacrifice and you would turn it over to a priest. And the priest would take that sacrifice and he would lay it on the altar and he would sprinkle the blood with it on your behalf. The priest would serve as a, a mediator to help you draw near to God. And this is a beautiful picture of the mission Israel was to have in the world. By being a kingdom of priests, their lives were to have close proximity to God and to who he is and a close relationship with him so that they could be a beacon of light to the dark nations around them. Israel was to help the nations draw near to God. Through Israel, the world was to see the grace and goodness of God and be drawn to the light themselves. But once again, what's the story of Israel? They broke the covenant. Israel didn't live as a kingdom of priests. They themselves didn't draw near to God, and they didn't help other nations draw near to God. In fact, it seemed like the magnetic gravity went the other direction. They were attracted by the nations. They failed to worship the Lord God and began to worship the gods of the nations around them. They did not shine the light, bringing others to God. No, in fact, they disobeyed followed and worshiped the gods and the nations around them. They looked more like the world than they did the distinct people that God had called them to be. And so their failure is throughout the scriptures, in the Old Testament reading, we can see they failed again and again and again and followed the false, false idols and they took the curse. They were exiled. They disobeyed. They were scattered. But Christ came. And this is where this covenant helps us see the mirror. Christ came, Jesus, the true Israelite, came and he kept the covenant. He served as one who drew near to God himself and became a priestly mediator between God and man. Jesus fulfilled the covenant by his obedience to the law of God. What we read in chapters 20 through 24 of what was required of Israel, the Ten Commandments, it's the law of God that's required for all of us as well. Jesus kept and obeyed perfectly. 
He fulfilled the covenant by his obedience to the law, and he became and is the only way to relationship with God himself. Jesus took up those words. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one has access to God except through me. You've got to go through the mediator. Peter reminds, uh, I'm sorry, Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect Israelite, fulfilled the covenant, and he came and he gave himself for us as a perfect high priest. He made us a kingdom of priests to serve him. Jesus became the offering on the altar itself so that you and I would have access to God. He laid down his life as a substitute for you and I so that we could draw near to God through Christ and that we could help others draw near to him. In giving himself for us as our perfect high priest, he has made us a kingdom of priests to serve him. And so we could sing along with the worship song of Revelation 5, worthy are you, Christ, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them, the tribes, the peoples, the nations, a kingdom and priest to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Just as Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God, so we are to share the good news of Christ with all people. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. We are to be priestly, a priestly kingdom bearing witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus has given us himself and his spirit to empower and to equip us in the mission. You are saved to come to Christ. And as Christ draws you near to the Father based on his sacrifice, he sends you then. He equips you to minister to the world. God's grace is not so that you would just hoard it to yourself, but so that you would share it, display it, that you would live as a kingdom of priests drawing near to God yourself and helping others draw near to God through Christ. His grace has purpose, intention, to be his treasured people, to be equipped to minister for the sake of his name. And thirdly, God's purposes of grace are to knit his people, to knit us into a holy community. It's the last phrase there in verse six. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The third purpose of God's grace for Israel in this covenant is that they would be a holy nation. And the word holy here is really important. It describes what kind of nation they should be. God is setting them up as a distinct, separate, unique nation from all the nations of the rest of the earth. The idea of holy describes what that nation is to be. Israel was, the word holy here means to be devoted to, to be completely set apart for someone. Israel was to be completely and wholly set apart for God, completely devoted to God, given to God completely. It's one of the first commands that God gave them in the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The worship, the devotion, the work, all of life was to be lived by Israel for God, unto God, holy for him. 
They were to be distinct in their worship and work, in their recreation, and in their eating, and in every aspect of their lives, they were to be completely set apart and devoted to God in every way. And in so doing, they would be an attractive light, a light to the nations. The nations would look on and say, they are distinct, they are holy, they are unique, because their God is holy. Who is this God? So what did Israel do? Did they, did they become this unique, holy nation set apart to God and to him alone? Nope. <laughs> they failed spectacularly. They broke the covenant. Instead of worshiping, loving, obeying God and God alone, they pursued and chased after false gods and idols. And Moses himself couldn't get off the mountain with this, with this word, with this covenant. He couldn't get down from meeting with God with the ink dried on this covenant. And Israel was already at the bottom of the mountain worshiping a golden cow as if that had saved them from Egypt. This is the sad history of Israel. They failed the covenant again and again and again. But God keeps his promises. He shows his grace Jesus, the true son of Israel, the perfect Israelite, he kept the covenant. I want you to see, I hope you're connecting the dots here. Israel's failure all leads to Christ, who keeps the covenant for us. Jesus worshiped, obeyed, lived completely devoted to the Lord God and to God alone in every facet of his life. As a human being, he worshiped God perfectly. He obeyed the will of his Father perfectly. He devoted himself in every way. Jesus is the definition of holiness. And he fulfilled this covenant for Israel, for us. But the turn is here. Instead of enjoying the blessings of fulfilling the covenant, Jesus took the curses of the covenant, of not obeying. Where, where Israel was scattered and exiled, where we deserve death, torment forever and ever, Jesus came and stood as a substitute. He stood in our place, even though he had perfectly fulfilled the covenant. And in his obedience, he suffered and died for those who were not completely devoted to God. He took our penalty. He bore our curse. He did that so that all who trust in him all who believe in him, regardless of what earthly nationality they possess, they are by the blood of Jesus made into a new people, a new community, a new nation. The Bible describes that new people as the church. We, the church, those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ and in his perfect obedience, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection from the grave, we have been saved and placed into God's family, given his mission, and united together as his people. We receive the blessings of God's grace that have intention and purpose, that we are to be knit together as a church family together, a holy community, distinctly displaying and devoting ourselves to God. The point is this, that God has saved us by his grace out of darkness into his marvelous light, and that light shines, it has a purpose. So what does it mean for us? Well, let me, let me land us in this regard. The Mosaic Covenant shows us how things should be. God saves first, 
We, in response, obey. We receive great promises and blessings. But Israel's approach to the covenant shows us something deeper, something that stands in the way. It shows us our failure and our sin. It's where the mirror reveals. As we look at Israel, we see ourselves and we go, I'm just like them. I fail all the time. We cannot, no matter how hard we try, keep the covenant on our own. Yet God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God, the Lord God, will have a treasured possession. He will have a kingdom of priests. He will have a holy nation. He has that through Christ. Christ coming for us in his first advent is how those realities are brought about. Jesus, the perfect and true Israel, in keeping this covenant, has fulfilled what was required so that we can live under God's grace by faith in Jesus for these great purposes. We don't have to fear today that God will cast us out or exile us because of our failure. Christ has already succeeded. He's won the victory. So the calling for you and for me is to trust Christ all the more and to pursue God's promises, to pursue his purposes of his grace. In Christ, you're a treasured child. In Christ, we are a royal priesthood. In Christ, we are a holy nation. And the purpose of all that is so that we may proclaim his excellencies. The reality is we won't do it perfectly. We'll struggle with sin. We still do. We are still dealing with the corruption of the fall within us. But we don't have to fear the curses of breaking the covenant because they've already fallen on Christ for us when he died on the cross. We can enjoy the blessings of the covenant and pursue the purposes of his blessing in our lives of faith. We come back to 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Where Peter speaks over us and he says, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. Hmm, sounds like Exodus 19. A people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's gift of grace to us has great purposes. Let's lean into them by faith in Christ. Let's be the people that Christ has purchased us by his blood to be, knowing that we live and we walk under the grace of God in all things. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word and mercy and grace to us. How Christ has come and fulfilled the covenant that we could not fulfill and re-identified us as his new and holy people. Father, may we live out the purposes of the gift you intended for us. Not so that we might be filled with pride or think we have accomplished or earned anything, but so that we might be trophies of your grace, that we might be people who proclaim your excellence in all the world. Might we shine as lights in a dark world because you have shown the light of Christ in our hearts. We thank you for your grace. We ask you help us fulfill these purposes in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.